I'm going to pray, and then we are going to hop into the text and talk more about blood, which is fun. Thank you, God, for this morning and that we can be together in your house with your people on your day, worshiping your name. So that's, look, this is all you. And we, we worship you. You are not just a participant here. You are the center. You are our king. And we come under you to worship you and to exalt you, to lift up your name, to sing your praises, to study your word, to engage together the beauty of our God and the beauty of his revelation to us. So lead us deeply into who we are in you as we think and talk about what it means to be a covenantal community. God, enlighten us, enliven us, open our minds, break our paradigms, shift our thinking, mold and shape our hearts to beat with yours. Connect you know, our, our brain to our emotions in ways that are life-giving and create a whole, wholer, whole, wholer wholeness in who we are in you. Thank you for the way that you have been growing us, Father. Thank you for your deep generosity to us. Uh, we again receive from you today and are so pleased to be your children. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been talking a lot about covenant, particularly as it regards uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, the word we've been using a lot has been the word Eucharist. Um, and we'll continue to unpack that throughout our time uh, this morning. Let's read Leviticus 17, verses 10 and 11 out loud together. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. We talked about the idea that we always think of blood as negative, but blood is actually extremely positive, most evidenced by the fact that you're sitting here alive. Blood is life. We think of blood as death, and we need to shift our view. God is not a bloodthirsty, malevolent God. He is a loving, kind God, and blood is life. Blood is life. You say, but doesn't the release of that require death? Well, yeah, because the wages of sin is death. But the beauty of God is that he takes that which is death and he turns it to life, what we call resurrection. But we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Blood and life. And we talked about a lot of different things in ways that we think of blood negatively, but actually blood's pretty positive. It was pretty funny last time, uh, two weeks ago when I preached about this topic, I had five different women contacted me or talked to me like after the service or, or like on email. And they were all like, blood is great when you don't want to be pregnant, you know, um, which is one I forgot about, which I, because I'm male. Um, blood Blood is oftentimes good. And in Abrahamic covenant, there's a very, very bloody picture um, that is the picture of God's covenant with his people because the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. So we talked about the covenant and the way that uh, Abraham was put into a deep sleep. Abram rested while God made the covenant. God walked through the blood. Abram did not. And God, from the very get-go, from Genesis 15, takes upon himself the responsibility for his people. He prophesies the Exodus, the great story of salvation. 
He prophesies the beautiful rescue of who he is um, and his presence in and among his people. So that's a quick review. Justin talked about it particularly last week from a a Last Supper standpoint and what it meant for Jesus to be um, sitting with his disciples for the Last Supper with a betrayer and a denier, both of whom he invites and partakes with. Because where their faithfulness and love fail, his love and faithfulness does not fail. And communion, the Last Supper, is a picture of that. We're going to talk really specifically today about communion, about the sacrament of communion, about the Eucharist, and about what it means for Cornerstone to think about it differently as we move forward. Before we get there, though, I want to line out the idea and the concept of this covenant and of what it means for us to be a covenantal people. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 17. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And it's, there's a lot of grace here in 1 Corinthians for all of us, because it's easy to think, to look at like the American or global church these days and get critical and be like, oh, we're not anything like what Jesus wanted us to be. We need to get back to being what the early church was like. But the, the early church apparently had sex with their stepmothers, and uh, were horrifically um, uh, um, prejudiced against the disadvantaged and marginalized um, and completely misused and uh, treated really, really poorly the sacrament of the Lord's table. When we look at the New Testament church, the church got screwed up real fast. So it's important that we not level our judgment against Christ, that we declare that we love the head and hate the body, because we've always been in deep need of correction. That's as true today as it was back when Paul writes this to the Corinthians, and he says these things in verse 17. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. 
when Jesus sits down with his disciples for the Last Supper, he institutes a concept. He institutes an idea, and it's, and it's not a new idea. Nothing really changes from like a, a tradition standpoint when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. It's Passover. That's when he does the Lord's Supper. That's when they sit down for the Last Supper together. The Passover has been celebrated yearly for thousands and thousands of years. The Passover reaches way, way back into Judaic history, and it hits and touches upon a key concept and a key portion of the culture of God's people from all ages past. And this culture among God's people from all ages past comes all the way forward to today when we get together as a church as well. And the cultural concept in play is this. When we gather, we eat. When we gather, we eat. If you invite someone to a meal, what does that say about your relationship? It's welcoming. It's good, somebody said. What else? It's there's some intimacy. That's right. All right, that's that's very true. That's asking them to trust you. Okay, it's an offering of friendship. Anything else? Providing food. That's right. Has anyone ever been invited to a meal where you sat there and the other person ate? Seriously, has that ever happened to anybody? I tried to. Th- I know I was going to ask that. I tried to think of that. Like, has that ever happened where you just sat there? That happened to you? That's that's crazy. Why? Oh, oh okay. Except for dietary restrictions. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? Like, it's just it's it's human instinct that if I've got food and I'm eating, and if you're sitting down at table with me. Like, it's, it's the height of rudeness, as far as I can think, to like sit there and eat in front of somebody and not offer. Little kids hear this from their mom all the time, right? Like, like um, you know, if, you, if you can't share with everybody, then don't share with anybody. Be, and, and don't eat it yourself either. Like, don't just gorge yourself in front of all your, rah, 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 you know, <laughs> see what I got. Um, the, the idea of hospitality being based in a meal is, is, is core to humanity. And you can see this from all the way back. There are actually laws on the books in ancient times that if you didn't show hospitality, that was a criminal offense. Where there were cultures that were in place, like the Hittite culture, where if, if you were known as someone who was not hospitable, even to an enemy, like let's say that you set a duel at your house at noon, and that person came over, and it was mealtime, you were supposed to sit down for a meal before you killed him. (laughs) That's not too far from us either. What do we know about prisoners on death row? What's the last thing they ask them for? A last supper, a last meal. And what do they always ask for in that meal? Generally, it's something that means something to them. the, the, The idea of food and the community around it, food is almost always a means to another end. 
right? Food is almost always a means to another end. Either I get to survive, I get to live, or I'm building relationship in this. There is some kind of exchange that's taking place when there's food set down between two people. Have you ever seen a couple fighting in a restaurant? Isn't that, I I mean, I just think that's so fascinating. I love to watch. Um, (laughs) You know, it's like, because I've done it too, where like just some big conflict or whatever, and, and 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 there's the food, and there's nothing exchanging between the two. You know, and he's looking around, and she's looking down, and things are clearly going wrong. And, you know, like, that's, that's, a, that's a tense setting. And that, that is a meal that is not enjoyable. Right? But there is, and, and so that whole situation feels different. It feels strange. It feels off, because that's not the intention of what that's meant for. That's meant for warmth, welcoming, hospitality. And this, to, to this day, you can go to third world countries where people have nothing and if you go visit, they will pull out stuff for you to eat. You know, it's, it's amazing. It, it, it's amazing. This whole concept of what food exists for is, for, as far as I can tell, I mean, I'm not an anthropologist or a sociologist, but I read a lot, and <laughs> I checked it out this week. Every culture known to man values food as in a place to exchange, as a place to build on some level relationship with one another. Food is not a weapon. You're not going to find a place where people use food to fight each other, <laughs> except elementary school cafeteria sometimes, you know. <laughs> like that, that, that's not what it's for. Food says something. So remember all that. Next part. When Christians look at the Old Testament, particularly the sacrificial system, we do so with jaded eyes. We do so taking our concepts and theories of atonement and juxtaposing them and looking through those, gl- through those lenses back on history. And we interpret history according to our current theological positions. So we know that Jesus died as our substitute on the cross. Because Jesus died as our substitute on the cross, when you look through those lenses back at the Old Testament, that means all of those animals in the sacrificial system died as the substitute. Died as a substitute. Now, I'm not saying that's a wrong way to think about it. What I am saying is that's not a full way to think about it. When you look at the Old Testament, when you study the Torah, and you see what it is that God lined out for his people, and the way that he called for them to engage him in a sacrificial system, because blood is where the life is, sin is where the death is, and where there's sin, there must be covering for that. That is not the end. That is not the end. So up top here, you see the five major offerings in the Old Testament. Five major offerings in the Old Testament are the burnt offering, the peace offering, the grain offering, the trespass offering, and the sin offering. Now the sin offering and the trespass offering are different than the other three. The sin offering and the trespass offering are fully, 100%, completely for God. And as you can see from the chart, they are the only two mandatory sacrifices. The other three are all voluntary. They they are not required. The first three are not required. The other two are the trespass offering and the sin offering. The trespass offering particularly is required yearly. The sin offering is required when you commit a capital offense that could be confirmed 
in the presence of two or three witnesses. At those points in time, a goat for the trespass offering, a ram for the sin offering, that sacrifice would be completely consumed and given to the Lord. Right? The blood would be shed, and that thing would be completely consumed and given to God to completely wash out, in the trespass offering case, the sin of a corporate people, in the sin offering, the sin of an individual. It's interesting. Corporate sin matters. Right? Corporate sin matters. Sin together matters. Just because people were unaware of the effects of slavery doesn't mean that anybody is held without responsibility. Just because it was culturally okay doesn't mean that we get off in saying that something was, it was just, that was for them. No, corporate sin matters. Furthermore, it extends itself forward when it's not properly cared for in our past. That's a different sermon. These other three offerings that you see here, uh, the burnt offering, the peace offering, and the grain offering, they all contain on some level or other some of these elements that you see. So back over here on the sin offering, that's just straight offering for sin. Like there's nothing you can do. That, this is particularly for sins that maybe I didn't know that I was committing when I committed them. But I got found out, and I need covering for that. Trespass offering is knowledgeable sin, and it requires not just payment, but restitution. It's the only sacrifice that requires restitution. When I come bringing a trespass offering, which is willful sin, then I have to pay restitution for that. So if I steal 100 bucks from Jake and I get found out in that, or if I confess that, I have to give a trespass offering to cover that. It's mandatory. By mandatory, what that means is the great punishment here is not death. It's exclusion from the community. In the place where a sin offering or a trespass offering is required, when you look at what it is that God requires and you say, no, I'm not going to do that, the punishment is that you are cast out of the community. You are not worthy of being able to call yourself a part of the people of God because you don't live like a part of the people of God. So you bring yourself unworthily into the camp when I've stolen from Jake, everybody knows I've stolen from Jake. It's been proven that I've stolen from Jake. And I say, well, tough. I don't care. That's not okay. To look sin in the face and say yes to sin and say no to God, that is a sin that would affect the corporate body. As a trespass offering then, I, I, I not just make a sacrifice, but like, sorry, Jake, about the 100 bucks. I spent it on popcorn chicken. Um, Lots of popcorn chicken. Yeah. I don't even know where that came from. Um, it's got to be something better. I spent it on uh, Eagles tickets. That's better. All right. No, that's worse. That's worse. I'd rather eat $100 worth of popcorn chicken than have to watch the Eagles play live. All right. So, not only do I then repay Jake the $100, I actually have to pay him back $120. 20% because I am paying him restitution, not just repayment, but payment beyond. So these two mandatory offerings, when they're not observed, exclusion from community. The other three are voluntary offerings, none of which require restitution. 
right? none of which require restitution. So in the place of the burnt offering, what you have present are some of these particular uh, types of things that we see before, put before the Lord. So the meat is burnt before the Lord, not the whole thing, just a part of it in the burnt offering. And then that burnt offering is given to the priest, and that's sort of his payment. Right? That, those are his wages. The priest works hard in the temple. The priest doesn't have another job. The priest's work is the temple work. And as such, the people honor the priest, and God honors the priest by giving the priest the basics that he needs for his livelihood and for his family's livelihood from the sacrificial system. So part of the burnt offering is burned. The other part is given to the priest. The scriptures say that the aroma that goes up before the Lord is sweet. So like when you walk into a house and you're like, hmm, this smells like turkey. That's a good aroma. All right, this goes up before the Lord and it smells like turkey as opposed to chicken. I don't know why we say things taste like chicken when turkey is way better than chicken. Um, But that's a different sermon. (laughs) When you give the burnt offering, you also give it in conjunction with the grain offering. When you give either the burnt offering or the peace offering, both of those are in conjunction with the grain offering. So not only are you giving meat, but you are also giving grain. That grain is sometimes just straight grain, like go out into a field and grab some, here you go. That grain is sometimes, uh, you know, ground up and mixed with oil and a little bit of water, and it's made into a cake, and then that cake is brought with the burnt offering, and it's given as a burnt offering. Another thing that you would bring with that is a drink offering as well, which would be water in most cases, unless you were in the land of Israel, and unless you were wealthy unless you had the ability to live luxuriously, or if you wanted to make a really costly, a really costly offering. So let's say that you weren't wealthy, but you still wanted to worship God with your drink offering. Well, then you would get some wine, good wine. And they would actually pour that out on the ground before the Lord. The burnt offering comes, the grain offering comes, the drink offering comes, water if that's what you bring, but wine even more so. And then you see the peace offering having the most check marks. The peace offering right here carries meat, aroma, grain. It's the kind of uh, sacrifice where you make it into a cake so there's oil present and you bring wine. So if you're offering a peace offering along with your grain offering, which you can see, what you have is meat. You have the aroma for the Lord, the grain, the oil, and the wine. To sum it up for us, Burnt offering, grain offering, water, and or wine, you have a meal. The purpose of the sacrificial system is not bloodthirst. The purpose of the sacrificial system is not just spiritual math. You sinned, now God requires blood. The purpose, listen, 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 whatever, hear this. If you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. The purpose of the sacrificial system was always fellowship. It was always fellowship. When you brought a burnt offering and a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord, it wasn't God up there going, come on, give me blood, give me blood. That's what I need. Like some, like, 
deistic vampire. What you were bringing was a meal. God, I failed. Can we sit down together and talk about this? It's a whole different spin. It's it's a whole different way to think about things. It paints God in a completely different light when we let him be what he actually is, which is a good father. You know, when I really want to, like, I have a deep conversation with our kids, or when we want to have a deep conversation with our kids, you know where that generally happens? Happens on a dinner table. Have you as parents ever said this? Man, we got to have a meal together. It's been a while. (laughs) You know, because you're running all over creation, doing this or that, and you just need some time to sit and focus together. And in that time, have your kids been sinning? Yup, your kids have been sinning. (laughs) Is that the focus of the meal? I hope not. I mean, it might need to be. There might be some point to it, like, you guys realize you completely bailed on all your responsibilities for the last week and a half. Now, I know we've been nuts and whatnot, and things have been crazy, but the purpose of this meal is to get some things back in alignment. So let's talk about this. How did that happen? Why did that happen? What does it mean for our home to, wait to, to run? need it to run. What does it mean for us to think about these things together? Yeah, chores stink. I don't like my chores either, but we've got to do them. If your kids ever said this, we got to clean this morning. Who's coming over? <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. Our house just needs to be a certain way. It needs to be in a certain order. And so often the place where that order is lined out and where it's given is at the dinner table or around a meal. What is it you celebrate on your child's birthday? You generally ask, you know, what's your favorite food or where do you want to go? How can we celebrate you with what? With food. With food. Christians get together to hang out. What do we do? We eat. We eat. We're not any weirder than any other culture. We're right in line with every culture. Because the meal matters. The sacrificial system is a meal-based structure. You just got to think of it spiritually instead of physically. The whole concept and the whole idea is the meal. It is the fellowship. And I'm telling you, this shows itself all the way forward. All the way forward. Think about what happens. Jesus sits down for his, with his disciples for one last supper. And this meal, this Passover, he now recreates it. And he reinstitutes a, he institutes a new way to think about the meal that's always been in existence, even from these ancient times. So when you do this now, before the Passover was always about looking back at the Exodus. This is what our forefathers went through. This is what our, our heritage comes from. It was always looking back at the Exodus. You again look at the Exodus, but now you look at it through Christ the one who has truly set us free, not every year when we celebrate the Passover, but once for all. The blood, we don't put it on the door every Passover once a year. We, we, we sit and we engage Jesus in his presence. We come together, and when we eat, when we eat, we actually eat of him. We actually partake of him. Friends, you are not observers of the divine nature. You are partakers in the divine nature. 
You're not just somebody that watches what Jesus does. You're somebody that he uses to get it done. Like, it's, it's, it's so much more full than what we allow it to be. Communion, the table, the meal, it is the point. It is the point. And you can see in 1 Corinthians 11 here just how important it is. And what's important about it in 1 Corinthians 11 is what Jesus says about it. Right? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. When he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every Passover, what did they remember? The flight from Egypt. And now what is he telling them to remember? Him, his body broken. Every Passover, they remembered the blood on the doorposts. But now what's he telling them to remember? The blood, his blood, not just any kind of blood. Let the text continue. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. What did the Passover always remind them of? The old covenant in his blood? No, the old covenant in a perfect lamb's blood that covered them for that year that when they remembered that flight from that place in Exodus. Jesus is now bringing all of this eons of time forward, putting it all on him and saying, this cup now is the new covenant in my blood. How you were used to understanding God now changes. It now is about me. I am the son of God. I am revealing myself here, not in that I'm conquering you and I'm putting you under my thumb and you better give me blood, but rather in that I give my blood for you. And this covenant that we engage together is a covenant that is held in his blood. So when the people in Corinth come together and they act disrespectfully toward, listen, toward one another, he comes against them for the manner in which they act toward each other. He does not come against them saying, you better make sure you've remembered every sin that you did this week or this month or since the last time you took communion and tell God about it in this 60 to 90 second block (laughs) so that you can take worthily. No, no, no. The fellowship that we have with God in communion is a fellowship that we extend toward him and that we extend toward one another. And when we disregard the fact that we together as a church have come together as a church to partake in communion worthily as a church, that means that we communally are aware of one another and our corporate standing before God our own brokenness and need for his blood, and we sit down with him as a church over a meal. Say, God, tell us who we are. You are my covenantal people. Man, you don't understand, though. (laughs) You don't understand how far we've fallen. No, actually, I do. Which is why the covenant is itself what you're consuming right now. When communion becomes an exercise, when communion becomes a ritual, when the Lord's table becomes something that we do because it's time for it or because it's in our rhythm, then we make it so much less than what it's meant to be because we think of it individually instead of communally. When you come together, it's all plural nouns here. When you come together, you do so wrongly, you do so unworthily. It's all plural It's all plural. The only time he gets personal is when he says, let a man examine himself. 
So take a look. Take a look. To examine yourself about what? If you have sin in you? Heavens, no. Otherwise, none of us should ever take. Because God seems to, in the Old Testament, care about sins that we both know about and sins that we don't know about. So if what I'm examining myself for is sin, to make sure that I've cleansed all that sin from me before I take the Lord's table, I have now stepped into a realm that I do not have the possibility to do. Let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself for what? Let a man examine himself to be sure that he or she is aware of the fact that you are not in this on your own. That there are people around you who are also hungry and thirsty for Christ. And you can't marginalize them. You can't look across and say, oh, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this sinner. That person really needs to take communion. (laughs) That person really needs to get clean. That person really needs to hear this sermon. That's unworthy. Let a man examine himself to see what his posture is toward his brothers and sisters when it comes time for us to be at the Lord's table together. When you come together, you do so rightly because what you're sitting down to is a meal. And what these folks would do is sit down to a meal while other people stood around the edges and watched them eat. How rude is that? What an offense to the person, yes, but what an offense to the fact that they're consuming Christ at this point in time. And some people are left out, which is the beauty of the table. Take your Bibles, turn back to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. You just stick your finger in there. We're going to head to that. But first, I wanted to walk through seven Eucharist myths. You're going to like this. Seven Eucharist myths. This is seven myths that I think that we think about when it comes to the Eucharist. Number one, calling it Eucharist means we're Catholic. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The word Eucharisto means Thanksgiving. It's got the word grace in it, that C-H-R that you see there, C-H-R, that comes from the uh, Greek for charis, which means grace. So the beauty of the Eucharist and the name Eucharist is that it is a grace-filled thanksgiving when we take together. The word Eucharist is both biblical and by far the best expression of what it is that we come together for when we come to communion and the Lord's table. Secondly, sharing communion every week means we're Catholic. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The early church took communion every week, all the time, before the Catholic church ever existed. The early church, it was the center point of the service. It was the whole idea of being together, was we come together to take Christ. We come together to consume him together. The rhythm of church history, all down through history, long before the Roman Catholic Church was ever formalized into any kind of religious posture or structure, was the rhythm of this is why we come. Is there singing? Yes. Is there sermon? Yes. Is it central? No, it's not. The table is. The Eucharist is. The Eucharist is why we come together, because this week we need to thank God, (laughs) and we need to receive grace again and be broken together before him again, aware of our deep need for him. Thirdly, 
We should be afraid of or resentful toward Catholics. God knows they earned it. That's a Eucharistic myth. Folks, stop being afraid of Roman Catholics. Stop. I rebuke you for your fear of Roman Catholics. First, that is your heritage, whether or not you like it. We all come from there. Secondly, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They have very different belief system than what Protestantism would hold to. I'll give it to you. When it comes to veneration of Mary, or when it comes to the leadership of the papal structure, when it comes to the professional priesthood, all of those things. But there are a lot of people who are not followers of Jesus in the Protestant church who do what they do for legalistic reasons or who do what they do to be self-righteous or self-justifying. Catholicism, when there's not Christ at the center, when there's not faith in Christ that's inherent therein, is simply a road to self-justification and self-righteousness. Protestantism, when there's not faith in Christ and when there's not followership of Jesus, is just another road to self-justification and self-righteousness. So we're all in hell together. Fear is not going to help this. Reacting is not going to help this. God desires a reclamation of his people. It doesn't matter what they call themselves. God is reforming his church, front to bottom, back and forward. It, it's, it's, it's all held within, and fear and resentment is only going to produce more fear and resentment, which is only going to produce more division, which is only going to produce feelings of superiority on both points, which leaves us just with, with more division. Understanding our heritage and where we came from is very, very important. Understanding what we believe and why we believe it is also very, very important. But when it comes down to it, fear and resentment and certainly making decisions about how it is that we choose to worship or not worship Christ based on what another religious group does is about the worst way to do anything. The question is, is not what do they do? How can we react against that? The question is, Lord, how do you want us to worship you? What would you have for us? We're suggesting that Cornerstone moves to taking communion weekly because of the continuing myths. Another myth, you have 60 to 90 seconds to make things right. Don't blow it. A lot of us grew up like this. It's time for communion. Let's take some time to examine ourselves. Okay, here's the bread. <laughs> And it's been a week or a month or however long it was since the last time communion came. You know, and there's sort of like, this is, this is the time you have. Examine yourself. Make sure everything's right. Um, you know, and if things aren't right with you and another brother or sister, like, don't take. How many relationships do you have? Have you ever thought about that? Like, I, that, that's enough time for me to click through my wife and half of one of my kids. So what am I going to do about all the other friendships and relationships? No, that, that, that is not the point. That is not the point. The point of examination is not for personal spiritual cleansing. The point of examination is how am I regarding the corporate body that has come together right now? 
And if I'm regarding it wrongly, then I need to change right now, which I can. If you're a current sinner, don't partake because then you might die. Um, <laughs> that's in there. <laughs> that's in there. If you're a current sinner, don't partake because then you might die. So if, if, if you have sin in you and you haven't cleansed that well, and if you do that repeatedly, you're, uh, that's why a lot of people have fallen asleep. Um, do, do you know why Sodom and Gomorrah burned? Do you know why God judged Sodom and Gomorrah as harshly as he did with fire and brimstone? Why he completely flattened them and destroyed them completely? You know why? That's right. That's right. It was not because of sexual sin. Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed because of sodomy. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because they didn't care for the poor. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because there were poor people and there were marginalized people within their city walls and they didn't care. Not just did they not care, but they actually oppressed them. So when we come together as a body of Christ, The point here is not to bring your laundry list of things before the Lord or before the community. Folks, you are a sinner. You you and I, we, we are broken. And there are sins of both commission and omission that we all partake in. And the Old Testament structure, God sees and knows them all. So when you come together at the table, we come together not with all of us making ourselves perfectly right before God, but with all of us coming together saying, no, we are all completely wrong before God. And here we are all together. But for me to look across the sanctuary or across the place and to judge someone for their sin or to know that I have hostility in my heart toward a brother or sister and then to take the table like that to exclude them from the blessing of the Lord through right relationship with me? Oh, man, now we're talking about sin that's worthy unto death. That death, some of you have fallen asleep, Paul says. Those are the kinds of things that God takes very, very seriously. How are we as a community regarding ourselves? What does it mean for us to come to the table together. Eucharistic myth, number six, the sermon is the center. Communion is a tag-on that makes frequency old. This is my personal largest, biggest reason for why it is that we need to shift to weekly communion. Everybody listen to what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to talk to you from a pastor's heart with a prophetic edge. We have done a great, insert, a great disservice both to pastoral ministry and to the church as it gathers together on a Sunday morning. In that, the buildup for the corporate worship gathering is to uh, the human expression of a bunch of thoughts that you need to engage and receive in an understanding way intellectually and then apply to your life and walk out of here then taking what you learned and going and doing it. If we go back to the ancient way, the sermon is for the purpose of accentuating our need for Christ. Worship is for the purpose. Singing is for the purpose. Scripture reading is for the purpose of accentuating who God is in our midst. 
And as we come together and we see the dissonance between who God is and our deep need for him and being reminded of that from his word in unique, creative, interesting ways, which I'm all for, all that I'm saying is it's time to stop ending the, ending the service with us. And it's time to start ending it with Christ. Or it's time to start centering the service, stop centering the service around an intellectual engagement and to start centering the service around why we really come together, which is to worship God in both spirit and truth, which we see revealed in the body and the blood of Jesus. When the Lord's table is regarded correctly, like Paul's admonishing us here, it opens doors and reveals things that allows not just for application of teaching, but it allows for transformative teaching. The table opens up not just being sure that I'm cleansed of sin, but it opens up a door to deeper and deeper community and connection to one another, whereby we engage in life-giving ways because we are all in this together. And we all deeply need Christ. And the greatest extension and prophetic picture of our both need for him and of his supply to us is that of the Eucharist. Lastly, you are either worthy or unworthy. Good luck with that. We are all unworthy. Friend, you are unworthy. I am unworthy. I have no right to partake of the body and blood of Jesus. None. By his grace, apart from shame, and apart from, in fact, all that shame and guilt that you want to feel right now from me, he took all that on himself. <laughs> you, you, and I, you and I being unworthy to sit down at a meal with God is one of the just true, it's just It's just true. It just is what it is. Like, we're, we're, we're broken. We're broken and we're, we're not right. But God has made us right. He's made us right through Christ. Every time you take communion, every time you take communion, if you're thinking about worthiness according to, like, sin, instead of worthiness according to the way that we regard one another, we take unworthily because we're sinners. That's, that's why we take the table. It's a continual, not just a remembrance like, oh, I remember that, but it's an embodiment of the death of Jesus that cleanses us and that unites us together in Christ. Revelation 3. Verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Coming to communion like that is coming unworthily.
Remember the elder son and the prodigal son story? The younger son, Dad, there's no reason you should love me. I have completely blown it. Will you just be my boss? No, you're my son. The elder son, Dad, you should love me. See what I've done for you? Don't you see how hard I'm working here? You should love me. I'm good. When we come to the table like that, we are now betraying our communal need for Christ. We are taking unworthily. Not because we have sin in our hearts, but because of our posture of our hearts toward one another and toward the table. Like, yeah, darn right Jesus died for me. None of us would ever say that, right? None of us would ever do that. I deserve this. No, of course not. But the way we live can betray that sometimes, can't it? This, these folks here, they're emperors without clothes on. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Now pay attention. This is to a church. This letter is written to a people of God, a church. This is not an evangelistic call. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and what? Eat with him. And he with me. I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears that and lets me enter, lets me in, we will sit down and we will have a meal. We will sit down. He's just come off this three verses of you're, you're, you're naked and you think that you're not. You, you are completely bringing shame to yourself because you're walking around saying, aren't my clothes great? Don't I look awesome? Don't I smell good? Well, the reality is, is you're blind. You're so blind that you can't see that you don't even have clothes on. So my counsel to you is to come to me so I can put stuff on your eyes to help you see. Right? Spit in the mud, rub it on the eyes. Right, this is all of this going back and forth with Jesus in, this, in his mind. Like, I bring, come bring yourself to me. I will clothe you in garments that you have never seen. It'll be amazing. It'll be incredible. So that when I knock on the door, you won't answer buck naked. Because that's an unworthy way to meet greet somebody. You think you're clothed, but you're not. You think you can see, but you can't. So come and take these things from me. I'm knocking. If you open this door, we can hang out. If you open this door, we can be together. If you open this door, I will come in and we will sit down and I will eat with you and you can eat with me. We can have fellowship, community, relationship, this thing that God has always given us. Is what he most wants. We just think, oh, I blew it. Sin. Now what do I do? Burnt offering. Rah! Transaction complete. Blood's been poured. God's happy that an animal died. And then I go back on with my life again. Then I blow it again. Oh, what do I do? 
And then I go back, I work my spiritual math. My bloodthirsty God is satisfied with the blood of his bloodthirsty son. They've got this contract worked out. We have so distinctly destroyed the concept of the salvific work of Christ on the cross in that what God most desires is what he says to the thief on the cross. What? Today you will be with me in paradise. It's an invitation to what? To togetherness. It's an invitation to community. It's an invitation to the meal. What does Jesus give to the couple who some, for some reason run out of wine at their wedding? What does he do? He takes water, all they could afford at that point in time, and he turns it into wine. He takes their offering of poverty and he turns it into a drink offering. This, this beautiful picture. The meal is now complete again. Why? Because God's present. And he's doing what it is that he's always done. Make things whole and complete. Folks, the end of all things is not happy humans in a happy place, playing harps and singing for eternity. The end of all things is a new heaven and a new earth where we sit down for a meal. Because we are the bride of Christ. And he has called us and he's claimed us. And our role here on the earth now is not spiritually transacting back and forth and then running out of this place, doing mission, doing mission, coming back, oh, I screwed up, what are we going to do? Oh, well, we'll take communion in a few weeks. Okay, good. Because then I can get everything wiped out and transacted and all of those things. And then I, here I go back out to do mission. Oh, that, that, this is not how God intended it. But that's how we live, what God wants to sit down together. And think of the parables that Jesus uses. Have you ever heard about this guy who had a banquet? He invited the most influential and important people in the city. And they all ignored him. So you know what he did? He didn't put the food away. He didn't clean up the the dining room. He invited everybody else. All the people that were standing around the edges. The marginalized, the poor, the broken. Come to the meal. Come and eat with me. But I'm not worthy of your station. Sit down and eat. Let's hang out. Let's be together. The meal has been the center of a Christian theology for so long and we have lost it. We have lost it because we've dumbed it down and simplified it and reacted to other religious streams living out of fear and resentment. And it is time to reclaim it. And it is time to restore it. And it is time to come together with a sermon? Certainly. Absolutely. Singing? Yeah. Scripture? Uh Uh-huh. Announcements? Great. All that stuff. But on what are we going to center? What is going to inform most deeply our communal engagement together? intellectual processes together where we you know chew over stuff and then go out and apply it or is it going to be the meal is it going to be the fellowship all of us together in one place time and time and time and time again bringing to the front our own need for christ our own brokenness together worthily understanding we are all in this together and coming to the table again together to take of Christ together. That the grace-filled, 
Eucharistic thanksgiving might be the center point of our knowledge of God as we say thank you and remember him embodying his work for us as we consume not this sermon, not this music, not this experience, but as we together consume the only thing a Christian is ever told to consume, Christ. Jesus said, if you will not eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you have no part of me. Lots of people couldn't handle it. Jesus turns to the 12. He pushes them a little harder. Are you going to leave too? And the response is this. Where else could we go? You alone have the words of life. God, thank you for what you have given us in Christ. Thank you for the meal. Thank you for this beautiful work (laughs) that you took upon yourself and that you now invite us to in you. God, forgive us when we forget the centrality of what it is that you most desire. Your children, (laughs) your family, your flock, your body, your bride, your temple, all these things, communal ideas, communal engagements, the people of God together as your people before you at a meal. So God, lead us more and more deeply with wisdom, with truth, with goodness, with life, into what it means for us to know you and to walk in you. Forgive us for the ways that we have missed how and who we worship. God, we desire to have you at the center. So teach us what it means to know you more and more deeply. Thank you for your invitation to fellowship with you. Behold the cornerstone. Jesus stands at the door and he is knocking. Will we open the door and invite him in and eat together? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, God, for your deep, deep love for us. Teach us, God, what it means for us to know you, to worship you, to align with you, to be with you. Thank you for your heart, for your people. Thank you for knocking at the door. And so may you, my brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, may you hear the knock. May you open the door and may you enjoy your meal with your God. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Go with God.